Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. In his new book, Make Your Move, The New Science of Dating and Why Women Are in Charge, John Berger offers women bold new strategies for finding the one. Berger claims that modern romance is broken and it's time to flip the script. Apps have transformed dating from a mysterious adventure into a daily chore. Young, single, college-educated women are sick and tired of competing for a shrinking supply of guys. And marriage material men, long expected to take the lead when it comes to asking women out, are suddenly balking at making the first move, fearing they'll come across as creepy or inappropriate. Society is changing, which means it's time for dating to evolve. Millennial and Gen Z women are more than capable of seeking out what and who they want. These women are standouts in the classroom and champions on the playing fields. They're leaders in the workplace and trailblazers in city halls, state houses, and Congress. So why would we tell a generation of badass women that they're not allowed to be bold when it comes to finding love? Why should they have to sit back and wait, and wait, and wait for men to find them? Make Your Move is an honest, solution-based guide to finding love that lasts. If you're tired of playing by old rules, look no further. Make your move and win. John Berger is an award-winning writer, a contributor to Fortune magazine, a dating expert, and the author of Datonomics, How Dating Became a Lopsided Numbers Game. Name two, always on network's list of power players in technology, business, media, John is a former senior writer at both Fortune and Money Magazines. He's a familiar voice and face on radio and television, appearing on ABC's Good Morning America, BBC World Service, CNBC, CNN, MSNBC, National Public Radio, and Fox News. A graduate of Brown University, John lives with his family in Larchmont, New York. For more information, please visit his website at 
johnberger.com. Thanks for being here today, John. Thanks, Elizabeth, for having me on. So we usually start by asking an author to tell us a little bit about themselves and how they came to write this book. You, you share a little bit of, about that in the preface of your book, but I just want to jump in and ask you how the father of three boys <laughs> who are high school and age, how you came to write a book that really, I think, is going to be very empowering for women. So yeah, this is always the first question I get, like even, even with the first book, Deonomics. It, basically, it's how the heck did a middle-aged, married financial journalist who wrote for Fortune magazine and covered super boring stuff like oil and gas, like uh, how did I ever end up writing a book about dating? So yeah, it's a, it's a totally fair question. And here is the, here's the backstory. So the editorial staff at Fortune was, or it probably is, still disproportionately women. Um, and I couldn't help but notice that, that most of the men at Fortune were like me. They were either married or involved in serious long-term relationships. Whereas the women who I think I can safely say had more going for them dating-wise than we guys did. Um, they, they were disproportionately single. And the ones that I was good friends with, they weren't just single, they were really unhappily single. Um, they had these like dating stories and dating histories that made very little sense to me as kind of a guy who got married in my mid-20s, because from my perspective, they seem to have everything going for them dating wise. And I couldn't figure out why dating would be harder for them than some of the guys I knew who I, they weren't bad guys, but they just didn't, didn't seem to have as much going for them. Um, so that's what led to the first book, uh, Datanomics. And Datanomics was really more pop science than, um, than an advice book. And if you want, you want me to, to go into what yes, data? Yeah, yeah, sure. Let's okay. talk about so, that. Yeah. Okay. So, so datanomics explored how lopsided sex ratios among college graduates have kind of spilled over into post-college dating. So for the past 20, 30 years, we've had a, a approximately 30% more women than men graduate from college in the U.S. And, this, and actually, this isn't even just a U.S. problem. This is really every Western country. The women have basically been out, been passing men when it comes to higher education. Um, and obviously, this wouldn't matter when it comes to dating if we were all more open-minded about whom we date and eventually marry. But the research shows we are not open-minded. The college grads typically only want to date and marry other college grads. So what we've ended up with is a, um, a college grad dating market with you know, 30, 35% too many women and a blue collar dating market with too many men. And, and that was kind of what, what datanomics explored, the, 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 the impact of this on the dating culture. And the big conclusion of, of datanomics was that the rise of the hookup culture had really had little to do with porn or Facebook or anything else that scolds wanted to blame. And it was really all about these uneven sex ratios. But like I said, there wasn't a whole lot of advice in the first book on how to deal with it. Right. But when you tell your story, 
you're working with these women who are having, you know, dating trouble, but you had to care. I mean, you had to care about, like, somehow yeah. you got interested in, and you felt for them, and you decided you wanted to find out why. So I, I, I wouldn't have written the new book, Make Your Move, if I didn't have some regrets about how I approached the first book, Datanomics. And um, I had it in my head that the whole knowledge is power thing would be enough. And I can, I, I, mean, you, I mean, I'm guessing you knew it would not be enough, just be, you know, I mean, but, but in my mind, just explaining to people that it wasn't all in your head and now you have something you can tell your mom or your hairdresser or your married friends when they, offer you all sorts of useful, useless advice about all the things you're doing wrong when it comes to dating. I, I, I kind of thought that, that that would be enough and people would be happy, particularly the women reading the book would be happy with that. But as you probably could have told me beforehand, that was not enough. And women would show up at my book events saying, okay, I do feel a little bit better, but now just tell me what to do. And I didn't have a good answer for that back then. And part of it was just because I had this really snooty attitude towards the whole self-help genre, like within the, the book world. And in my mind, I was a super serious journalist who wrote for Fortune magazine and wrote about, you know, uh, you know, well, but, uh, you know, oil drilling or investing or technology or things like that. And the last thing I wanted to do was become the love doctor. <laughs> so so I, th there was a little bit of advice and datanomics, but it was really only because my editor forced it out of me. Um, I didn't, it wasn't, it wasn't what I had in mind. I mean, I it thought I it wasn't very easy either. It was like move to another city. Exactly, it was stupid. Right? I, I mean, I, I don't want to knock the first book, but yes, <laughs> but yes. So yeah, if you're 22 years old and just graduating from college, yes, you might want to um, consider the kind of prevailing local sex ratios if you put a high priority on marriage. But, but as you're implying, if you're a 40 year old woman who lives in Washington DC and has a whole life and a career and a friend group, you are obviously not gonna move to Seattle just because the sex ratios are more balanced, right? So, so I, 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 like I said, I, 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 had, I have some regrets about the tone of the first book. And I'll, honestly, like if I'm gonna, if you're gonna write a book explaining why dating is so hard for women, you kind of have to offer some hope and, hope and solutions. And I think I fell short with datanomics, but I'm, I, I, I believe I kind of righted the ship with the new book, Make Your Move. I'm still intrigued though, because there could be another person who wrote the book and said, well, that's it. I, that's all I got for you. And <laughs> I just, I don't think you're giving yourself enough credit for there was some level of really you feeling for women in this situation. And, and again, um, you know, just for listeners, uh, you have three sons, right? And so I don't know. I, I have three boys. I, I, I have identical twins who are juniors in college and then a 16 year old who's in high school. Um, I, I guess, you know, my wife and I just knew all these single women who were single and didn't want to be single. And it made no sense why they were single. So I, I, I think it had been this like 
constant source of confusion. And I think at first we thought it was just our circle of friends, but I'm guessing you have friends, you have patients who are in this boat and it's not just your circle of, it's, it's an everybody problem. It's kind of a widespread issue. And I think the worst of it is that these women kind of get browbeated or questioned by oftentimes their parents or their married friends who seem to believe that they must suck at dating, right? <laughs> like, right. like they're doing something terribly wrong, otherwise they wouldn't be single. And, um, but, but for me, it was kind of, it was more of a curiosity. I mean, I thought I was writing kind of like the money ball of dating, yeah. but, my, but, you know, baseball is just a game. And dating, particularly for people who put a high priority on marriage and family, it's not a game. I mean, it's, it's something really important to them. And I, I, I think the tone of the first book was wrong. I, mm-hmm. I, I treated it too much as a curiosity and rather than as a, um, a really important life problem that needed to be solved. And I'm trying to do that and make your move. I, I think... That's what I was really, I was really coming back over and over again, like, why is he doing this? So I really appreciate that. And you, in, in Make Your Move, you do talk about some of the, the book tour and the questions and yeah. stuff, but it, it's just, it's really fascinating to me because in, in the book, you also talk about how, you know, what a disservice some of the traditional, the traditional mindset for dating has been a disservice for women and then some of the socializing for men has been a disservice for boys. And so there's yeah. just something about your ability to really care. And it comes out in, in the stories. Um, you know, I think you, t- you share that when you talk about your, you and your wife, your circle of friends, you say a really good friend of hers, you share that story about how she finally yeah. meets somebody. Yeah, no, yeah, no, I mean, I, I kind of, I, um, I'm a big fan of Terry Gross, who does the Fresh Air show on on, uh, on uh, NPR, and I'm trying to remember who the author was. It might have been John McPhee, but 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 she she you know she's always interviewing fantastic authors, and I just have this distinct memory of one of her guests saying that um, every new book is an attempt to fix the problems in your last book, oh, wow. <laughs> and 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 for me that that was I. That was really what was going on. I mean, if you, the, I, the, the empathy that you perceive in Make Your Move for the women struggling with this was not in my first book, and I, I regret it. Um, but, but yeah, I'm trying to kind of um, make up for past wrongs and and provide real solutions for 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 not you know I mean they you know, my. Um, you know, my wife's friend is just an example. I mean, obviously uh, there are, I'm, I'm using her as a, um, as a kind of a way in that particular chapter, as a way into the, the notion that dating somebody who has a college degree is not a requirement and that there are lots of really terrific guys out there who didn't go to college, who are every bit as good when it comes to, comes to husband material as the banker or the lawyer or you know, the philosopher. Right. Right. And that, that's actually one of the interesting suggestions. And it, 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 the book is really helpful because it does give readers a lot, a lot to think about. 
I, I have two daughters. They're both sing, single, um, although one's in New Zealand. She's been over there for a year during COVID-free New Zealand. It's been good for her. But, I wish I was in New Zealand. That's my, that's my oh, dream vacation. So, yes. Oh, it's, oh, it's so, yeah, it's so beautiful. But so they're both single. And so, you know, you put in this book, like literally things they can do. And you suggest things like consider um, if you do online dating, removing the, you know, college or the education check mark or whatever, and things like that. Yeah. So, so I, it, it's funny. I, my, my feeling is, and I, I'm sure we'll talk about the online dating thing more, but my perception is that online dating has made uh, dating more transactional and more there's more box checking involved and it's more rigid. So whereas 30 years ago, if you went to college and the other person did not, but you met at a party or you met at church or you met at the beach or whatever, if you clicked, it wouldn't matter if one of you didn't finish college and the other one did. But because so many young singles, the only dating they know is online dating, there's all this box checking involved. And you never even see the dating profiles of people who aren't just like you. And I, I, I view this as a problem. And, and uh, you know, I, I something I, talk about a little bit in the book, but we can talk about more now is I, I coach little league baseball and, you know, I'm a travel baseball parent as well. And the, even though I live in a very kind of well-to-do suburb, the baseball crowd tends to be a little different than, than the average demographics of our community. So a lot of the, a lot of my fellow coaches, they're cops and firemen and they own landscaping businesses or they're contractors and things like this. They're a little different from the doctors and lawyers. And I, I mean, they, they are great parents. They're great husbands. And the reason actually they have time to coach is because they have different kinds of professional lifestyles. Their jobs are more nine to five-ish. And if you're, if you as a woman or a lawyer with a job with, you know, very unpredictable hours, um, it's probably not a great idea to be marrying somebody with equally unpredictable hours because it just doesn't mesh well. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of kind of, I'm not saying the blue collar guys are great and white collar guys are terrible, but um, given this shortage of white collar men, um, at least relative to the to the number of white collar women, I think there's some value in what I call unchecking the college box when it comes to to dating. Yeah, is it? I, I'm trained in mindfulness meditation as a teacher, and one of the lessons that you know you can get from becoming more mindful or through meditation is that anytime you you expand, anytime you make look at the bigger picture, or you enlarge the options you're going to have more freedom and ultimately you know more more well-being so um i love i love that idea when you bring that point up though i had another question another piece of curiosity that i got yeah. out of reading the book that at one point you actually talk about being sort of the lead parent in your family and so i'm wondering if you're speaking from experience about yeah well i mean look I, i'm not 
I'm not a stay-at-home dad per se, but certainly you know, once upon a time, um, you know, when I was a senior writer at Fortune and my wife was a um, kind of a partner, a young partner at a law firm, it, Laura and I had this daily negotiation in which we would, it would involve who had to be home by 6.30 to relieve the nanny. And I'm guessing lots of professional couples have had this experience. Um, maybe you've even had this experience where, where and like at five o'clock every day, it's like a fight, not a fight, but it's, it, it's yeah. like sometimes it's easy, okay. But, but sometimes you both have really pressing things you have to deal with and somebody has to give in. And for Laura and I, it had become a big stress. Like, like the, 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 these, these daily negotiations had become more and more difficult. Right. And at one point when I was at Fortune, I had the opportunity to, you know, I, uh, somebody who I had, I, I knew from the corporate world asked me to ghostwrite a book for them. And you know, the money was the same as what I was making at Fortune, plus it allowed me a more flexible schedule. Um, and, it, you know, this, this daily negotiation had become problematic for my wife and I. So I, I ended up, you know, taking what initially was a leave from Fortune, but turned into something, you know, I mean, I was still writing for them, but I wasn't full-time anymore. Um, and it, it turned out to be good for our family. And I I switched from either writing my own, you know, either you know, being a full-time journalist to either ghostwriting or writing my own books in ways that that I was usually, you know, always, not always at home, but usually at home. And it, um, it like worked for our family, and this is I, this is probably more than you wanted an no. explanation. But but th this kind of gets to my point that that dating somebody or marrying somebody who's exactly like you, I, I don't think it always works. And and I, honestly, it's not always about the time commitment and about the schedules. I I'm not sure that dating somebody who is exactly like yourself actually is that much of a romantic appeal either. I think, I think it, it, you know, if you, I think the differences can be fun. Yeah. Yes. And I think the other thing that you're talking about now, and I, I like that you have your own personal struggle with it because, you know, that. I didn't, I didn't read all of Datanomics, but looking at that, I mean, made me think of the books Freakonomics, yeah. you know, I read Freakonomics and how cool it yeah. is. You, you can look back now and you do that a little bit and make your move. You talk about how you look back and how different time periods, like in the twenties and the flappers and how so much is going on and it's the culture and everything is changing as we speak now. And I think this is a new dilemma that couples don't know how to manage how there's how, I mean, it wasn't like it was better in the past, but there were more stay-at-home women, and now that's shifted. And so you've got the college, you know, changes in college graduates, and you've got all these things. And so it's it's all really fascinating. And I I think make your move is actually on the cusp of something. I yeah, I, I mean, I mean, make your move. I'm really trying to kind of. Um, uh, demolish all these outdated gender roles when it comes to relationships. Um, 
And th this idea that, oh, well, women can be badasses when it comes to education or sports or jobs, but oh, no, no, when it comes to dating, you have to be coy and passive and wait and wait and wait and wait for the guy you really like to actually ask you out on a date. And if he doesn't ask you out, well, that's just too bad. So, I, I mean, I, I don't really, I, I, I kind of feel like if, if everything else in the world is changing when it comes to gender roles, why the heck would we think, oh, no, they have to be status quo when it comes to dating? This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Right. Not just dating. You actually go, you go yeah. a little bit further and talk about couples that are in a long-term relationship where they're, oh, yeah. Yeah. you're, you know, really committed to each other, but for whatever reason, the, the man isn't making a proposal. So Elizabeth, what, what did you think of that? My idea that, that women shouldn't be afraid of proposing to men. Well, I actually, you know, without disclosing anything, I, I have two women that I've worked with individually, you know, in, in therapy who have ha had that dilemma. And, um, you know, one of them resolved it in a very similar way where she actually ended up, you know, deciding she had to do something to demonstrate she, she, like she didn't want to have the conversation over and over again. She actually had to do something, you know, make a plan, make a move, do something. And she did. And it would, and it worked. So I, I love that. I think you're here. And I love that you had Elizabeth Warren's story in there and it, yeah. I think it's very empowering for women. Okay. I'm glad. I mean, the, in the first book, Datanomics, my solution to this problem was a marriage ultimatum. And I, not, I, in some ways, right. I kind of feel like, the, yeah, see, see, this was the financial journalist in me coming out <laughs> like, oh, well, you know, either there's a problem, here's a solution. And, and I, I didn't like, I wasn't thinking through the romantic aspects of it. And I, I didn't, it, and, I, and this is one of my regrets. Like I wasn't thinking through the reality of dating and how important these stories of how we got, you know, how we got engaged are. It's not, it's not supposed to be some dry transaction. It's supposed to be something wonderful. Mm -hmm. So telling a guy put a ring on it or else is not going to be this happy story that you forever will tell your grandkids, right? right. right. Uh, um, and I, so it wasn't long after Datanomics came out that I had some regrets about the whole marriage ultimatum thing. But still, I, I, I at the same time, I know all these women, and it sounds like they're some of your patients as well, who have been in these relationships for three, four, five, six years, that that they're they're ready to get to get married, but the guys are not. And the question is what to do about it, right? I mean, that I mean that's what you're working through. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, so so my take is, all right, well, let's not ruin the engagement magic, but by issuing an ultimatum. So, but, but you can't like wait forever. So how about just propose to him? 
And if he says no, he says no. If he says no, at least he, you you know that you, you shouldn't be wasting another year with a guy who who can't commit to you. Um, and, and the, you know the Elizabeth Warren story. Do you want me to share it? Yeah, um, sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, um, um, you know, while I was working on this chapter, I, I, I came up with the, I, I came across this this um, uh, anniversary kind of open message that Elizabeth Warren, the senator from Massachusetts and former presidential candidate, um, that that she she sent to her kind of an, an anniversary message she sent to her now husband Bruce. Um, and both of them were, I think they were both, both teachers. I think at the time you- Right, 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 yeah. right, right. right. They, they were both law professors. And, yeah. and um, she, I gotta find it. Uh, okay, all right. Um, so I'm gonna just, you know, uh, read from part of the, Definitely. read from the book. Um, so this is Elizabeth Warren, the quote from her. A quote, I proposed to Bruce in the classroom, Elizabeth Warren um, uh, wrote in 2016 on Facebook. Um, uh, Waste, uh, Warren's Facebook post was an open anniversary message to her law professor husband, Bruce Mann. Quote, it was the first time I'd seen him teach, writes Warren. Um, I was already in love with him, but watching him teach let me see one more thing about him, and that was it. When the class was over and the students had cleared out, he came up to me and asked somewhat hesitantly, uh, what did you think? Warren's reply, what can I say? Will you marry me? He stared back at me, Warren continued. It was not the first or last time that I gobsmacked him, <laughs> but he blinked a couple times, then jumped in with both feet. Okay. To make sure the deal was sealed, I smiled and said, good, let's do it. It made no sense at all. Bruce was teaching in Connecticut and I was in Houston. Besides, there was a the small matter of the fact that I had a complicated life, two children, both of my parents and my aunt B popping in and out of my house all day, a red station wagon and a mean little dog that bit people. <laughs> Bruce had lived with none of these things, um, children, seniors, station wagons or dogs, but he never hesitated. We got married 36 years ago today. It made no sense at all, but maybe that's how love works. All I know is that I'm sure glad I asked and I'm sure glad he said yes. Happy anniversary, sweetie, I love you. So it's a, it's a wonderful story, right? And um, I, I, I mean, she's right. If she hadn't have asked, who knows what would have happened. Um, or if she had given him an ultimatum, that wouldn't have like that wouldn't have been a fun like like the the, the and, and I think one of the points I, always, I I really try to make in the book is that these stories of how we meet these meet cutes so to speak aren't just stories they're actually fundamental to the relationship and you could have two people who may be perfectly compatible but meet on a dating app. That's not the same as two people who, you know, yeah, th th there was a guy I was talking to on Twitter who kind of literally bumped into his wife on a ferry, like in Seattle, and um, struck up a conversation with her, like on the ferry, and that, that, that's their meet cute. That this story of like the wind blowing through her hair on the ferry and meeting on the ferry is much different than trading carefully worded text messages over 
Match.com for three weeks before having a nervous date over, over sushi. So I, 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 people, the research on this shows that people become very invested in these stories of how we meet and people around them become more invested in them as well. So, um, you know, if you know couples, happy couples who have these really fun stories about how they met or how one of them proposed, it's, you know, those stories are important to the relationship. Yeah, I definitely, I, I think, I, I definitely agree with you. Um, at the same time, just to push back a little bit. Yeah. I would, I would also say though, um, that people who have met um, through online dating, they could still have a story. The story could be, you know, we texted back and forth and then we finally met up and we were at the, you know, the Boston Common and we walked around and, you know, could, they could still have yes. The, yes. a story of yes. when they first connect and whatever that experience was like, because far more problematic. And if you want to talk about online dating a little bit, I think yeah. you really bring what's more reassuring to I think readers is that you really bring there's real reasons why it's not working. Yeah. So I, I, as you and I were discussing before we went live with the podcast, I, I don't want to come across as, as trying, I don't want anybody to think that I'm delegitimizing happy couples who met on apps. Uh, I, I know that there's no shortage of, of happy people out there who met their significant other on the dating apps. And I'm not trying to, I'm certainly not trying to say there's anything wrong wrong with those relationships or or bad about those relationships. My point is, and if you read the book, you'll see there's nuance to this. Is that my point is that it's just harder to find true love on a dating app. It's not impossible, and I definitely do not believe it's impossible. I just think it's harder. And there are actually some, some niche dating apps I like a lot, and I do write about them in the book. So I don't want anybody listening to this to think that I'm like 100% negative on online dating because I'm not. But uh, they're particularly among young millennials and Gen Z, I worry that online dating is the only dating a lot of these people know, a lot of these young people know. And I don't think they have a clear sense of um, how much it, how much harder it is to find a real connection on the apps than it is in the real world. And th there are a couple, there, there are a few different issues here. One, you know, it's really more relevant for women than men, but not irrelevant for men. But but the first one involves safety. Um, there was a Pew Research study which came out last year which found that the majority of young women on dating apps uh, consider online dating to be unsafe. And 20% of young women on dating apps say they've been threatened with physical violence while on an app. Well, I, I mean, Elizabeth, I think you'll agree with me if there was a, a singles bar where one out of every five women were being threatened with violence, like who would be going back there, right? Right, right. All right. Um, so, the, so, so there's that, but, but I, I, I guess, and I, I get nervous about even making this argument, but, but, but I guess you could argue that there are singles out there who know how to manage those 
problems better than others. And maybe if you, if you, if you know how to manage the safety concerns, it's okay. But, but let's, let's just pretend that we're true for a minute. The other problem is that these relationships don't work out as, you know, as, as often as relationships that are formed um, in the real world. Um, there's a professor at Pace University in New York, Aditi Paul, who found that the couples who meet on um, who meet in the real world are basically twice as likely to marry as as those who meet um, on dating apps. There's another professor at Stanford University, um, Michael Rosenfeld, who. Um, if you Google Michael Rosenfeld, you'll, you'll find that most of what he has to say about online dating is positive. I, he, I think he's been quoted saying that he views uh, online dating as a net positive for, for modern romance. Um, and in, in his study on all this, um, in the appendix, he has this table, which the, the headline for the table is breakup rates are not much influenced by how couples meet. Now, I, I guess it's possible that he and I just have a different definition of not much, but, but, but let me just read to you the data from, from you know, that he kind of buries in the appendix of his study. And you can tell me, Elizabeth, whether you think not much is an apt way of describing this. Uh, according to, to Rosenfeld, the one-year breakup rate for couples who meet online is 16%. For couples who meet through friends and family, it's 9%. For couples who meet as neighbors, it's 8%. For couples who meet as coworkers, which is my favorite way of meeting, it's 6%. For couples who meet in college, also 6%. And for couples who meet in a house of worship, he says church, but I assume he means house of worship. For, uh, if you meet in church, the one-year breakup rate is 1%. Now, now, to me, that's more than not much in terms of the difference, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I mean, I, I, and to me, it's, it's rather obvious why these online, online relationships don't fare as well, because you actually don't know the person. I mean, if you, if you were friends of friends or coworkers or had some actual experience with this person in the real world before the first date, it would be easier to know whether you're compatible, but, um, when it comes to online dating, every first date is a blind date with a complete stranger. And like when you and I were single, blind dates with complete strangers were not, like, it's not like they never happened, but, but they, it, rare. it was rare, right? Rare. rare. But blind dates with complete strangers are every first date for online um, daters. And I mean, the reality is you have no idea who's going to walk through the door. I mean, it's, it actually, it's changing the culture. I mean, it, it's, it's changing the culture. But, but I'm wondering if you're going to end up writing more and more books that I just feel like this is the tip of an iceberg, right? Because what if, and, and I'm going to just, I'm going to allude to something else in the book. You do talk about your favorite way is to have people yeah. meet at the workplace and you we don't have to yeah. go into it in great detail now, but you do address the yeah, issues you with, yeah. you can address the issues about, you know, is it appropriate? And if, especially if somebody is um, managing a subordinate, should they be asking them out? So you, you talk about that, but what if there were different rules though? Like 
you could have gotten interested in like how we could change online dating that would make it like I, I've often thought because I hear about girls' experiences, which are not good, like dating someone for six months and then they just ghost you. And like, what about if there's some sort of requirement? I mean, online dating still new enough that maybe somebody needs to police it a little bit or at least set up some standards because it does seem like well, it's- yeah, yeah. I mean, Elizabeth, have you had a single patient who said to you, I love online dating so much. I only meet nice men and it's so easy to fall in love. No, never. I, I, I mean, it's laughing, but like, like, right, like when right. I start saying this, people, yeah. people start laughing like five <laughs> words in because right. it, it is so absurd. But I think the problem is, even though most people have had negative experiences with online dating, I and maybe you can tell me if you agree, but I, I think there's this fear of missing out, right? And I think that's why people kind of default to the dating apps because they have this concern well everybody's on the dating apps and my true love may be on there and he'll end up with the wrong person if i'm not on tinder too is that what's going on you think or yeah i i definitely think so um but i also think you you talk about what else is going on the whole me too me too movement and how how men have been you know kind of intimidated and you know, just not wanting to be as bold. I mean, even if they're in a bar or something, just not wanting to be seen as somebody who's acting inappropriately towards women. Right, so this is why I think women who are willing to make the first move just have this built-in advantage over other women who kind of wait and wait and wait to be courted. Um, you know, I, I mean, the most of the best known dating books that have been written over the past, 20, 30 years, books like The Rules or Ignore the Guy, Get the Guy, they kind of boil down to a very complicated version of playing hard to get. And the, the messaging is that, that um, if you seem too interested in him, he won't be interested in you. And the message that they want young women to send to young men in order to kind of induce them to be interested in, in you as a woman. The, the message is supposed to be something like not interested means keep trying because there's this belief that guys live for the chase and if you don't make them chase, they won't actually like you. But like, I mean, think about how the not interested is, you know, means keep trying thing kind of plays out in the post Me Too world. I don't know many young women or many any age women who want men to think that if, if, if they're approached in a bar or at a party and they, they see the woman seems disinterested, the, the appropriate response for the man is to back away and to leave her alone, right? It's not to assume she's playing hard to get, right? right? right. But, but yet we have all these dating gurus and dating books out there that are kind of whose messaging is built on uh, the idea that, that women have to have to play hard to get. And I just, it, it's created this, this catch 22 in the dating world in which the guys, you know, maybe men aren't learning all the lessons of Me Too as quickly as we should, but we are learning some of them. And, and I think this is an important one. Yet, a lot of women are still waiting for guys to be um, 
to be aggressors and to be assertive. Um, but but you know, guys don't know when somebody is playing hard to get and when somebody wants to be left alone. And as a result of this, I'm not trying to make dating easier for guys. I mean, guys don't buy dating books, so that's not my that's not my concern. I, I, I'm trying to create you know advantages for women. And I think as a result, women who are willing to make the first move with guys just have this enormous built-in advantage. What, what advice, if we have any men listening, what would you say to men about how to show that they're receptive to this? I, I, I'll tell you a story from the book that I think, hope we know. If you don't think it's on point, you know, we can you can circle back to the question. But but there was a woman um, who I interviewed for the book um, who I've known for a number of years because when she was in college, she was our kind of Saturday night babysitter. Uh, and she, the two things to know about her is one, she's she is attractive, but more importantly, she has an enormous personality. She probably should be doing stand up somewhere. Mm-hmm. Like yeah, she's just she's she's just a real cut up. Um, and as you know, some guys are intimidated by the whole extrovert thing when it comes to women. And and she had told me that this has been kind of a problem for her because some guys were a little, you know, scared by her kind of life of the party personality. And also they just weren't sure if she was, if she was just being nice to them or actually liked them. Um, so we, she and I were talking about the book when I was working on it. And then she launched into the story about how she had met her current boyfriend. And they were, they were at a party together um, and they were talking for like 30, 40 minutes. They were having a really good time. Um, but it was clear to her that he didn't really know what to do about it. So she just blurted out, hey, are you going to ask for my number? And, and you know, she didn't have to grab his ass or ask him out on a date or buy him a beer or do any of these scare tactic things that the, the, like the, the people who write books like The Rules like throw out there anytime you suggest a woman making her first move with a man. Uh, all she had to do was open the door wide enough for him to feel comfortable about walking through. Now, obviously in this case, you know, he, he took the hint and it was a pretty clear hint and that's what led to the relationship. But I do think from the guy's perspective, as long as you're not a moron and you realize that, 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 that a woman who says, hey, are you, are you going to ask for my number wants you to ask her out on a date, I think, I think the guys will be fine. Okay, that's a good point. And actually, um... It's, it's really fun if people read the book, you mention, you, you talk about that television ad, I forget the name, for beer, some beer oh, the, company. The beer ad, yeah. Oh my, yeah, so I looked at the, beer. I, yeah, look at the, I watched that ad and I was like, oh my gosh, you couldn't have paid someone to make that for you as an example, but you know, I so know. readers can look at, look it up or they can visit your website and they can find it's, that it's on my website. Yeah, and what, 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 and what's interesting is that all she does in the ad is walk up to the guy and say hi. But if a guy walks up to a girl at a party and just says hi, it doesn't go nearly as well, right? It doesn't, no, 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 no. it's like, it, no. and you talk about in the book too, like, oh, hi, or like those crazy text messages that, that girls and women <laughs> get like, hey, hey, and it's like, hey, what? Like, right, that's, yeah, yeah. But, it, but you're right, if you reverse it, that's, that's all it takes. And that the um, ad is like, 
I was like, wow, you just had, they happened to just make that video for you. That was super convenient. Right. So, so, so I mean, guys are so not used to women making the first move with them that it's really anything goes like, like they, they're not going to judge you for not putting in enough effort because they have no experience with a woman making a first move. So, so the, it's not the same kind of like dissecting of how you went about it that happens when, you know, with our, our traditional male suitors. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Um, can I just switch a little bit because I do want to make the point because I think it's a really important one that it was very intentional. You, you intended to make this book readable by mixing the science up with the stories. And so I'm just, I'm just curious if you'd share about how you, um, I mean, it's clear why you picked certain stories and I know you probably had to, couldn't include everyone's, but, but how you found the, the different people or did people find you? It's a little of both. I mean, I, in terms of the impetus, when I was on book tour with Datanomics, I, I, I was on like a, a morning, a local morning news show in Washington, D.C. And before we went live with the interview, the, the woman who was the morning anchor told me she had read the book. And while she liked it, it was the least romantic book about dating she had ever read. And I like she didn't mean to be she wasn't trying to be mean. But to me, it was like, oh, God, that's not what I what I intended. Um, and like I said before, I, I had a very kind of business journalisty kind of approach to the topic. And I didn't realize that that if you buy a book about dating, you know, you might like a little bit of romance <laughs> like in the in the storytelling. So what I really tried to do is find I mean, make your move is still very science based, but I worked really hard at finding sweet romantic stories that illustrate the science in ways that that um, that readers can relate to. And the second half of the book in particular is kind of filled with these kind of very, um, I, I, at least I hope, at least I believe they're kind of very optimistic stories about about um, how we can find our our soulmates without, you know, without like spending forty hours a week on a dating app. Right, and I just think that that was important though, because when you're putting something out there, you're saying try something different, which is what you're suggesting. Like, okay, well, you know, we need something different. What does that look like? And so I really found that the stories of the couples really helped because they were it was a wide variety and um, yeah and it it really helped. Um, speaking of stories, though, one of the other things I was just curious to ask you about was you you start the in the preface to make your move. You talk about your friend Sam, who is your gym buddy. Yeah, and I I just wondered what Sam thought because you know, she, she's tracking you down when you, you figure she wants to tell you what she thinks about <laughs> datanomics. And, and you kind of just, you, you just talk a lot about that and it, I'll let readers read that. But what did she think when you ended up mentioning her in that way in the preface of the book? Oh, she, she, I, I never would have written that if I didn't have her okay for it. So well, right. it wasn't a surprise to right, her. Right, right, um, and yes. I, 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 after I finished the chapter, I sent it to her because I, I mean, we had already talked it over, but I wanted to make sure that I disguised her identity in a way that 
she was comfortable with. So she, she had read it over and she, I mean, she loved it. Um, um, so it's so it's just that Um, that was another part. It was that was a good way to lead into like the spirit behind writing, make your move that you were, you know, you were trying to, you know, address some things that, you know, were part of the first part. You know what, there's a, yeah, yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a question I've started asking people that kind of, I think, I, I wish I had thought of it when I wrote the Make Your Move, but I actually think it, it helps kind of encapsulate the messaging of the book. And it kind of grew out of a, um, I, I have a friend who's an English professor at Rollins College in Florida. And Rollins um, ha- actually has this really, what I think is a really great idea. They had this kind of an adulting 101 class for graduating seniors in which it's like life skills. And, it, and it's, it, it's everything from, you know, financial planning and, you know, buying a home to dating and career stuff. I mean, it's, it's basically everything, you know, kids these days need to know. And I think it's a great idea. Um, but she, she had read an advanced review copy of Make Your Move. And she asked me to talk to the class about the online dating stuff that we've just run through. And at the end of the class, a young woman asked me a question. She said, okay, I get it. I understand why you don't like online dating. But let me ask you, like, well, how am I supposed to meet somebody if not through the apps? And we were doing this class fully remotely, just just so I could see everybody on the screen. And there were 30 kids in the class. And I, I put the I put the Zoom into Brady Bunch mode. So I had like all, all 30 boxes on the screen. And I said, okay, I'm gonna ask you guys a question and I wanna see a, a show of hands if the answer is yes. And the question was, how many of you have somebody you know and like from the real world who's single, whom you've ever wondered about dating? 30 kids in the class, 30 hands went up. Wow. Now, I, I realize it's a little different for 22-year-olds than it is for 52-year-olds. I, I, I get that. But I've asked this question a lot, and I would say 70% of the time, the answer is yes. Um, and my reaction is, okay, if you already have somebody you know and like from the real world who you're attracted to and who's single, why why would you ever start from zero with a complete stranger on a dating app when this person already exists? Just ask him out or ask her out. Right, right. I was just going to say that I I think what gets in the way of people disclosing their interest to somebody they know is fear, the fear of rejection. And, And again, I think you have to have a conversation about that so that people get comfortable realizing it doesn't have to be that big of a deal. So I, I have a really contrarian view on all that. And my view is embrace the vulnerability, embrace the awkwardness, because when you do that, everything gets real really fast. Like if you, if there's a guy you're interested in and you tell him, hey, let's go get coffee sometime. I mean, that could mean anything to him. But if you, but but if you really, really, really like him, and you say to that guy, you know, um, Tim, I've always liked you. I don't know if you know that, but I've always liked you a lot. I feel really good around you. I feel comfortable around you. Would you like to go out on a date with me on Friday night? The, the, nine times out of ten, he's going to have a, a very genuine 
um, response to that. And I know it, it requires a leap of faith and a risk, but um, I actually think that guy is far less likely to take advantage of you if you put yourself out there in that way versus saying, let's go grab a drink sometime. Um, because like, if you, do you know who Brene Brown is? Yes, uh, yes. Yeah. So, so she, she has this line in her book, which I'm probably gonna maul in the paraphrase, but it's something along the lines of um, um, vulnerability is courage in you, but weakness in me. And her point is that when we see other people take big risks like this, we admire them and it, and it kind of, it, it, it evokes a sense of admiration or empathy. But when we do it ourselves, we, we think we're being weak. Um, but you kind of have to realize that when, when you take a chance in a romantic, um, you know, situation like that, he's not going to interpret that as weakness. He's going to, you know, view that as, um, as boldness and and it's it's an admirable thing admirable thing not a negative so i'm i'm all about embracing the awkwardness embracing the the weirdness you know what i, I like that and um and maybe we'll even leave it or end on that note but i like that because even if someone dis isn't interested in you for some reason they could still really respect you and admire that you you know have the confidence to right. have the conversation and at least you now know. I mean, how many people do you know who always wondered about about a lost love or about somebody who maybe they were supposed to be with? I mean, if he says no, you never have to worry about it again or wonder about it again. Right. That's right. Now, and and for listeners, there's more in the book too about the long lost loves that you know you can you can <laughs> it's get the into. Best story in the book, right? Yeah, there's a, there's a really good story in the book, so we'll, we'll put that out there as a little yeah, bit of a tease. It's a tease, yes. Yeah. yeah, I just I want to thank you so much for for taking time to talk with me today and to, to talk about this very exciting book. And um, I'm wondering if you have any idea of whether you're you're working on anything else or if that's you know. I mean, I have a a ghostwriting project that's unrelated to dating, but I am like chewing over the idea of a, if there is a, a third dating book, but uh, honestly, I'm not, I'm not sure. So not if sure. any of your readers have a suggestion, I'm, I'm open to, I'm open to ideas for, for the third dating book, but I, I don't have one that I'm working on at this moment. That's great. That's great. I mean, the book also has a lot of um, interesting questions at the end of the chapter, so people yeah. can get involved in the conversation. Yeah. You're inviting that. Yeah. Right. So, so yeah, if you if you want to um, chime in on some of the end of chapter questions, you can go to my website, which is johnberger.com. My my name is spelled oddly. It's J O N B I R G E R. Johnberger.com. Also, I always like mentioning this. If you um, if you have a book club and you'd like to read, make your move, um, or um, I do these kind of book club virtual Q and A's. Um, I've partnered up with a, a company called bookyaya.com and you can get information on that either on the bookyaya website or on my own website, johnberger.com. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you, Elizabeth. It's fun. It's been fun. <laughs>